Uh, hello, I'm uh, Adib Saleh. I'm the fourth year senior resident over at St. Mary's uh, Emergency Medicine Program. Uh, here today we have a special guest, Dr. Dominique Hill, and we'll be discussing an interesting case we had recently. Um, so it was on a busy, you know, blue shift. We got a 52-year-old male coming in, priority one. Um, actually, it's a priority two. Uh, came in by EMS. They found him unresponsive, stooped over in his porch. Uh, they said they saw pinpoint pupils. They gave him Narcan and he became a little more responsive. Family wasn't with him at that time, so that's pretty much all the information we had when they brought him into the ER. Uh, when he came into the ER, he was wide awake, but very like belligerent, just not wanting to follow commands, um, but he was directable at that time. Um, then family eventually came to the bedside. Uh, vital signs at that time, he was tachycardic, he was mildly tachypneic, he had a risk rate of about 22, uh, pulse was about 122, um, and family arrived with a, he had like, there's like a container of meds that he had at home and they said he was recently had some dental work done and had a prescription for Norco, but that was about a week prior. Um, they also found an empty bottle of aspirin. The aspirin bottle was like expired over a year, so we thought maybe it's just in there because it's been there for a while. Um, they also said he has been depressed because he just recently got divorced. So that's the information we had at that time. Um, so, Dr. Hill, if you had a patient who's coming in, <coughs> altered mental status, don't really have much of a history, maybe there's some depression going on, we have an empty bottle of aspirin, don't know how long it's been empty, what's kind of your first go-to plan in this situation? I think your first critical action should probably be to check a glucose, because you think about your coma cocktail scenario, mm -hmm. which they already did Narcan, so no real response with that. The next action should be checking the finger stick glucose to make sure this patient isn't hypoglycemic and that's the cause for their agitation or altered mental status. I think if you do that, that's negative. Then I think you have to broaden the differential and consider trauma or any sort of intracranial hemorrhage as a cause or possibly stroke. Then you think about your infectious or metabolic causes, so you're drawing labs. And then in this case, luckily, the patient came in with pill bottles. And so that kind of had given us a little bit of a clue in terms of what was going on. And so I think at that point, you need to be sending your tox labs and maybe even considering a BBG to check for uh, any sort of respiratory or metabolic component to this, like a acidosis or alkalosis. Yeah. That's kind of, we did kind of an umbrella type, again, workup because he's altered. He can't answer questions for us. We don't really know if he's having any you know, pain or, or um, any true shortness of breath. We don't really know how much of his own medical history. So we, uh, you know, did a bunch of that. We got a, we got a you know, VBG on the guy because we did consider initially, like, you know, you know, aspirin and Tylenol toxicity. We kind of went over that. We checked an ammonia level. Um, initial blood gas actually came back showing he had a pH of 7.45. He had a PaO2 of 94 and a CO2 of 30. So what does that kind of tell us is that, you know, there's some respiratory alkalosis going on. Um, labs came back. He had a uh, no lactic acidosis. He had a mildly elevated potassium. He had a gap of 18, bicarb of 17, and then salicylate came back at 94, and acetaminophen was 50. Um, we still kept him in that room in blue. He was still relatively, you know, stable. Pressure was stable. He's still tachycardic. Um, but obviously we got, you know, poison control on the line and uh, kind of went through that with them. As we're doing this, the guy gets more and more aggressive, more and more tachycardic, more tachypneic, and eventually we take him over to the, the priority one room. Um, and he just, again, I think we, put, we did four-point restraints. Uh, and per, you know, tox recommendations, obviously you got to do NAC for the acetaminophen. But the aspirin toxicity was what really 
was a good learning experience because that was actually pretty pretty in depth. I mean, he met a lot of the criteria for salicylate toxicity and the clinical findings. Um, the big thing they were wanting us to start was the bicarb mm -hmm. and bicarb drip, and to make sure that we do not intubate this guy because you run the risk of dropping the respiratory rate and causing respiratory compromise. Um, so again, it was really hard dealing with this guy who extremely aggressive, um, you know, breathing faster and faster, becoming more altered because of uh, the tachypnea and work of breathing. And we got him running on a uh, bicarb drip. We'll get into the details of how you run the drip and what you want to do. Um, ultimately, we call the ICU doc. He's like, yeah, I agree. Let's not intubate this guy. Let's keep him the way he is. Let's admit him. Uh, so he goes to the ICU, gets worse, um, gets more tachypneic, more altered. Ultimately, as they're trying to put a line in this guy, they cannot get any kind of line because he keeps fighting, so they end up intubating him and uh, aspirates pretty severely. It gets like aspiration pneumonia on the ICU. Um, almost pretty much goes through septic shock. It's on levo drip. But ultimately, it does get better. Um, and then they end up finding out once he's awake and alert that he was actually suicidal, overdosed on the aspirin and Tylenol um, or Norco, and ends up going to the psych ward after that in stable condition. But it was a pretty you know, drawn-out process because nobody really knew what was going on with this guy. Um, but the big, again, big take-home points with aspirin toxicity, you want to treat it quick and fast and make sure you keep that respiratory rate high um, so they try to, you know, drop that acidosis. The other thing we're getting into is, you know, urine pH maintenance and uh, when you want to dialyze these people. When is it considered emergent uh, need for dialysis and an aspirin toxicity? So this is where Dr. Hill comes in. So the big thing with aspirin toxicity is, you know, when, when is our cutoff to say, hey, this guy needs dialysis? Um, the other thing is you have to have a pretty high clinical suspicion. And when you see an anion gap metabolic acidosis along with a respiratory alkalosis, that should kind of key you in that maybe I should be thinking about an aspirin yeah. toxicity case and you should send an aspirin level. So this guy actually had those. And again, we have the history that there was an empty aspirin bottle. Um, now, in terms of treatment, the biggest thing is sodium bicarbonate, and usually you'll, um, you'll do three amps of bicarb and D5 and kind of run it at uh, 150 milliliters per hour, but yeah. you want to keep the urine output between two to three cc's per kilogram per hour and the urinary pH at about 7.5 to 8, because you really want to help excrete that aspirin. Um, now, if you can say, say you cannot get that person, the, meta, the acidosis is actually worsening and you're not getting, overall you're getting more acidemic. That's a, actually a clinical indication for a dialysis. And I think we even ended up speaking to nephrology while the patient was yeah. in the department because he wasn't getting any better. He was getting more agitated, so altered mental status to the form of like uh, seizures, being coma, uh, comatose, or just severe agitation. That's an indication. Also, toxic aspirin levels chronically of 40 or 100. He was almost there yeah, with 94. Um, the other thing is uh, pulmonary edema. So if they can't keep up with that, uh, keep that respiratory alkalosis, that's another indication for an emergent dialysis. Um, I think those are probably the main ones, and also renal failure. So if you can't excre excrete that aspirin, there's got to be some way to get it out of the body. So hemodialysis. He did, he did get dialyzed. He did and get he dialyzed ended up getting dialyzed. Night. So those are right. probably the, the key things. And also hyperkalemia, hypokalemia is another Thing you have to be careful of because that can actually make things worse because you can't excrete it if you're hypokalemic, so you actually have to treat it. Luckily, this guy yeah. was hyperkalemic yeah. in that case, so we didn't have to worry about that. I think the big thing for us was like, there's many times during that shift where like, can we intubate? We need to intubate this guy. This guy looks because a lot of times you'll get a guy that looks like that. You, you're thinking intubation right off the bat because they're, they're super altered, you know, they're, they're really very aggressive, and you're thinking, I want to give this guy like ketamine, knock him down, and intubate. 
But this is the one situation where if you have true aspirin toxicity, you do not, you're, you're trying to prolong that need as much as you can. Um, obviously, if you absolutely need to, you make that call. Um, and ICU is probably the best place for that because they have probably the resource and the intensives there to manage the vent. Um, so this guy definitely was interesting because, again, there's a lot of times I went back and I was like, I want to intubate this guy. This guy looks bad. Um, and uh, so that, that for me was the biggest learning point is sometimes you just need to kind of be patient and not intubate and let the body, pretty much his body was doing what it needs to do um, to control that acidosis. And I think in these cases, it's very uh, key to get your consultants involved and involved like as soon as you can, yeah. like once you know what's going on. Because we had a very open conversation with the attendant yeah. that was on call and was like, hey, this is what's going on. We're treating him the best we can with, you know, doing urinary alkalinization, yeah. but he's still agitated. You know, we'll talk to nephrology about emergent dialysis, but can we get this guy to the ICU? Yeah. Because other, because at some point he's going to need to be intubated. Um, why not have it happen in the ICU? He can also be dialyzed at the same time. So, and I he think was also really good with, like, we didn't want to get a head CT on the guy because he's altered. And, yeah. Yeah, we have a kind of understanding of why he is altered, but same thing. He's like, yeah, not, don't worry. But he was too agitated going there. They'll, they'll, they'll keep an eye on him and, and get it. Because sometimes we'll feel like we got to get all this stuff done before we send them up. But sometimes getting them to the right place is more important than getting completing that workup where they can get it somewhere else. Um, so always, always keep your priorities in check and know when to do the right thing, like when to start the bicarb drip, when, um, when to intubate and when not to. Uh, but yeah, that was, I thought for me it was a really great case and encompassed a lot of the toxicology that we read about. Again, very, as, I think the only aspirin toxicity I've had in my four years of residency so far. So. And this gentleman also had a, a Tylenol uh, overdose, yeah. overdose as well, and yeah. so ended up getting neck to bolus and infusion. So he had like two different tox emergencies going on. Yeah. So he was pretty sick. And he also had rhabdomyolysis as well that, yeah. on top of it. Yeah, CK was about 1,800. But again, I guess with all the fluid he was getting, it, he was taken care of just fine. Um, any questions at all about this case? All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Hill. You're welcome. It's great having you.